Thank you for an excellent presentation. Now, from what I remember from my own presentation last week, yes. our presentations, mine and Tristan's, on the international development space within HE, largely focused on the educational mission of universities. Mm -hmm. Your presentation, from my first impression, largely focused on the research mission mm -hmm. of universities. Now, I wonder whether that was just coincidental, or do you see that actually that is the case, that the literature within those spaces actually focuses on the education mission versus research mission? And if you see that as well, what do you think is the rationale behind that? Well, I think that there's, there's a lot of more immediate things to say about knowledge um, in the global setting, but you know there is a whole discussion about the issues that um, some are working on in relation to self-formation and international education. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the transformative experience that many international students have when they cross borders. And, and that's, I mean, that line of research, I think, is an important line of research. And we are, in this department, pursuing that. So I'd be happy to add another five or ten minutes on that, on that dimension as well. And I think that if we ever do anything more with these, these seminar presentations, and I'll no doubt yours and, and Tristan's are ready to be taken to another stage uh, in terms of publication or some other some other vehicle. Um, I would add in something about about the education mission because you're absolutely right. I mean, there's, there's some other things too that I think I've missed, but um, that's an important one. Uh, so let's now welcome our first, uh, our second speaker, Dr. David Lewis, and his topic will be about post-colonial and post-global geo geopolitical imaginaries in the global higher education. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, um, those of you who go to music gigs will know about the role of the warm-up act. Um, you. They might be good, but you usually arrive late and you haven't heard of them. So my danger here is not to be the warm-down act after, after Simon's brilliant presentation. Um, he's given us a really powerful vision of the possibilities for global um, higher education um, as a new civil society, potentially. So um, let me see what I can add or, or, or complement this with. First of all, thank you very much, Simon, for organising the seminar series and uh, Marion Tristram for great um, presentations last week. Maya gave us a wonderful literature review and Tristram asked us about to think about the constitutive role of universities in development. And Simon reminded us of Earth, Earthrise, the blue marble, you know, what happens when we start thinking about the globe in a different way. So I haven't thought of myself as a scholar of global higher education, um, but I think I need to apply for a study visa and stay for a while, because um, I think it's a really interesting space to think about ourselves as part of. I trained in anthropology um, at Sowers in the 1990s. That meant that I was... Um, busy digging up every post I could find and examining it. So we were, we were, we were definitely engaged in post-colonial and post-modern and those sorts of debates. And I remember a conference, gosh, um, almost 25 years ago, which was thinking about the global-local relationship in anthropology, and I think I even wrote something embarrassing about it, which I'm not going to tell you where I, where I wrote it, so you, so you can't find it. So I've changed my abstract. Um, sorry about that. I mean, if you actually you came here simply to hear about Kwame Nkrumah's critique, then... Um, um, apologies, but I will get to I will get to the University of Ghana. Um, I, I wanted in my original abstract to foreground um, African nationalism because I thought that um, what we're doing here is we're trying to work out how we think about 
um, the world, how scholars um, create geopolitical imaginaries, how we deploy the global as an analytical concept. And I absolutely want to build on Simon's work here because um, what we're trying to understand here is is where we stand when we talk about the global. It's a relational concept. So obviously the global looks very different from the streets of Accra or from 1919 Oxford as it does from Oxford today. Um, and, and we, so we need to think about our relationship to, to government dominant models. I've got three, three things I want to do. Okay? They roughly correspond with the three paragraphs. I'm not going to show you lots of slides. You have to look at me or, or just um, look at the ceiling. Um, so the three things I'll do. I, I first want to say a little bit about the history of this hybrid field and um, its relationship to data. Um, it's, it's really productive entanglement with the policy process. Second, I'll draw a bit on anthropology. Um, and my argument is really going to be to say, can we open up a more capacious post-colonial understanding of global higher education and its world-making? Can we develop a research sensibility that's attentive to the margins, the shadows, the oppositions generated within and by the field of global higher education? Can we think of the post-colonial as part of the field? And the last part, I want to go again, building on some of the things that Simon was saying, but also um, came up last week, thinking about the relationship between the empirical and the normative, because I think that's quite important for our field, um, and how, how we um, relate to, um, to, to that um, experience that people have, either within policymaking or... Um, or critiques of policymaking and what that means. So is there a commonality of purpose between those who are closer to the policy process to those who are very critical of it, both because they both share some sort of normative vision for the possibilities of higher education? So here then the, the argument finally then is, is an inter inter interdependency of instrumental and reflexive knowledge in thinking about what we might call the post-colonial global higher education? Okay, so... Part one is called World Making and World Leading. Um, a very quick history lesson. There wasn't much, if anything, written within the literature on global higher education as a phrase um, 20 years ago. Quick, quick Google Scholar search will confirm that. Uh, there's a book published in 1993. Um, the one exception, and this is an interesting exception, was a Czech policy thinker and um, analyst called Ladislav Serich, who was a, a colleague of Burton Clark. Um, he began as an OECD policy wonk, and he wrote a, a book in 1972 called A Global Approach to Higher Education. So he was really ahead of the curve. Okay? Um, he went on to found the, um, or to be involved in the European Institute for Social and Educational Policy. That led partly to Erasmus, a European Journal of Education. He was one of the first people to think about global higher education as a system. Now, in his obituary, Ulrich Tickler described him as excellent at stimulating a dialogue between higher education researchers and policymakers. And Corbett remind, remembers him as a pioneer of comparative policy analysis, a key individual in policymaking. And I think what's interesting here is that here we have an important scholar in the field early on who's benefiting from and building on his policy um, connections and expertise. He's been able to turn his his work within OECD into, into a scholarly frame. Um, and, of course, you know, let's go back a bit further here. Um, one of our best role models is Clark Kerr. Um, his vision of the multiversity remains highly influential still, as, as Simon has pointed out. Um, and perhaps all the years he spent mediating labor disputes in California taught him the art of dialectical synthesis 
Um, and, and that's something which I also want to hang on to is, you know, is there a role for sort of bringing different positions together? So if we are going to date the beginning of global higher education, one place might be a, a seminar in Washington, December 1998, held by the U.S. Institute of International Education. Policymakers, Open Society, World Bank, international VCs were there. Philip Altback suggested there was a value of an international dialogue, but there wasn't possible yet to think of a global system. There were only one million students at that point studying globally. There are more than five million now. He set out, as Simon has described, some of the sort of research agendas for the field, um, working conditions, technology, employability. So going back to Global Scholar, um, 2000-2005, there were 20 articles with global higher education in the title. Three are written by one Simon Marginson. The next five, there are 117 are written by Simon. Um, and then from 10, 2010, the, the field explodes, and it's quite hard for you to maintain your market share. <laughs> um, but, so I'm going to embarrass Simon now, okay? And, I, I, and rather than trying to map the whole field, which I think is, you know, um, is, is some things we're trying to do, but I'm going to take an anthropological tack and really do an appreciative reading of his own, of his own work. Um, and, you know, the, the CV is a good data place to start. And if you mind um, Simon's CV, um, there are 360 mentions of global... Um, um, uh, and of that, of, of, of more than a third of your articles have global higher education in the title. So clearly you've been hugely formative in the field, and you've collaborated with all sorts of scholars and supported many careers. So without turning this into a this is your life, um, you know, how, how useful was your, was, your, was your early years working um, as a union researcher? That's surely a brilliant preparation. Of course, in Australian higher education was one of the first areas to, um, to, to develop and to respond to neoliberal policy reforms, um, so, you know, a commitment to new left politics and 15 years in policy research is a brilliant, brilliant position from which then to begin to think um, about what's going on in what became a testbed for, for neoliberal higher education, perhaps, um, in, and the introduction of market logics. So your early work addressed this, this free market, the, the free market policy reforms, the experiences of teachers. Monash, of course, was a fascinating place in which to, to see the rise of entrepreneurial university. You can then ride the global higher education tiger, and you have done brilliantly analysing you know, the rise of the rankings, the rise of WCUs, the tilt of the research world towards the Asia Pacific, the massive growth in student mobility, and the rise of the Silk Road. Of course, it's this tricky act to pull off because universities haven't just been willing accomplices, but active cheerleaders. They're the ones who have fostered knowledge flows and mobilities. And that all reminds us that scholarly fields are, are assemblages. Um, there are assemblages that bring together a, a mixture of human and non-human. And, of course, part of the key here to the rise of this field is the data. Okay? The data that starts busting produced by OECD, UNESCO, national governments, then, of course, commercial, commercial rankings. Um, and, of course, our access to the Internet has driven that. Comparative education might have once been a preserver of scholars, but we can all now compare countries, systems, universities, courses, individual experiences. And I think your work is engaged with this data politics. You've written about how the lattice of relationships within a complex field gets simplified by um, global rankings. It normalises market competition. It stratifies um, um, on the basis of an American university template. Um, and so I think you know, that, that, that's really helpful to remind us about how, how universities are being transformed by the global rankings. So how might I characterise the work you've done, Simon? Well, I think um, one of the points you've made, and I'm going to analyse one of your early papers, is higher education becomes a key subject-object of globalisation. You call this paper after globalisation, and you talk about, as, as we've, you know, you've already referred to, the irreducibly complex nature of reality. 
And this is one of the challenges for our field and um, for disciplinary approaches to our field, which is that you know, um, a conventional discipline might break, break up knowledge, economic, political, sociological. You point out quite rightly that it's very difficult to, um, to understand this complexity through one disciplinary lens. Real-life higher education, you write, can't be confined to one way of seeing. It's populated by subjects with hybrid practices, motivated by economic interests, desires for status, sharing of knowledge goods. Any attempt to oppose a single master principle drawn from one world imaginary can succeed only by eliminating everything else from view. So that's quite a challenge for us, isn't it? What, what do we do about uh, you know, a, such a complex um, phenomenon we're trying to study? Um, so you, at this point, you turn to a physicist who's also struggling with this. You mentioned Niels Bohr, a um, quantum physicist who says, well, actually, perhaps we have to live with the contradictions. Okay. And perhaps you're also inspired here by Clark Kerr. Um, and thanks, James, for reminding me of that. Because Clark Kerr reminds us of the, of the importance of, of scholarly common sense, empirical pragmatism, the theoretical middle way. So as you put it, the task is to combine different branches of social theory, drawing partial analyses together into an accumulating lattice, finding whichever theoretical tools are most useful. So therefore, analytical pluralism allows normative pluralism. Your arguments you say, is sympathetic to both social democratic and liberationist political positions. So what we have here, then, is a number of different possibilities that emerge from a number of different analytical positions. So, you know, it's, it's almost like a thousand flowers bloom. But, but what I like about what you've, the way you've written about your own writing is that you, you describe it very powerfully. You say um, that you've developed a trail of writing and reasoning that's grounded simultaneously in the possible, the realistic and the plausible. Okay, now that's a lovely phrase because that's telling. It, it allows you to be pragmatic, to combine and make the best sense of the available data and the evidence, but to remain critically attentive to the negative consequences of globalization, but also to prefigure possible policy futures. So what we've got here then is, is this combination of normative, political, and empirical, and I'll come back to that because I think that is a real strength, but it also presents us some challenges. So you've been scrupulous at attending to the inequalities, the stratifications, the homogenization, the dangers of universities reproducing social hierarchies. You've also pointed to the challenges of high participation and the limits of educational mobility. And, of course, the non-English problems and weakness of disciplines, the post-Confucian university. You've talked about all of this today. You've also offered ways of thinking about knowledge flows. And, again, that, that you've referenced the gift, which was interesting, um, suggesting that flows are, uh, you know, are, are valued differently from within economic logic. League tables, research rankings could all be seen as a new standard of value, a new volume of freely exchanged public knowledge, allowing a symbolic economy. So that allows us to begin to think of what's going on within a global heritage system as somehow separate from a capitalist logic. Um, but you've also hung on to this vision of globalisation being a driving force that does, as you put it originally, irreversibly change the politics of the nation-state. It is about world systems that have a life of their own. There is a bit of a Wallacean thing here, but, but actually, you know, there is a normative commitment to, and you've said that as well, a normative commitment to the global system. Um, and, of course, to, to the notions of um, the normative possibilities of that system. If it's evolving according to its own logic, separately from nation states, then, um, then that offers up these possibilities you ended up your, your talk with. Critical realism, then, is supplemented with an appealing vision of the benefits of the global flows of knowledge. Every university can imagine itself as Harvard. Um, global science constitutes a vast joined-up zone of free critical inquiry. Perhaps we've gone back to the medieval foundations, you suggest, with their shared texts and travelling scholars. So, just two thoughts here, then, before I move on. 
One is that um, is is about the the agency that that we need to also give to the profit economy, the the, the publishing economy, the um, commercial companies that do run the the, the, the ranking systems, um, the citation indices, the, the huge big multinationals. Um, one commentator recently worked out that seven and a half billion euros were spent globally on peer-reviewed articles, and he reckoned half of that was profit for the major public five publishing houses. We also know that the university student market in the UK alone is worth 20 billion. We learned that recently. So there is, there is on the one hand, this republic of letters, and there is on the other hand a sort of a very big commercial ecosystem around it. So then the question is, do we focus in just on the system itself and its dynamics, or how do we think about the, the broader ecological? economic, political relations within which that world system is, is embedded. Um, the new system is, is enabled by the restructuring of universities as corporations, cutting costs, revenue streams. Does the potential for this world system autonomy that you've, you've alluded to come at the price of indebted consumers, precarious faculty, carbon-intensive scholarship, managerialism, and the loss of academic freedom? How do we balance the possible with the actually existing? What's the right mixture of policy engagement and political critique? Okay, so my second part now is called Forgotten Histories and the Global Shadows. And this is where I'm going to turn a bit to anthropology um, and think about the ways in which anthropological ideas might help us think about what we might call the empirical normative study of universities. So anthropologists of globalisation, and you've obviously used, used a padre yourself, Simon, have long recognised the limits of um, a simplistic spatial understanding of the local and global. Okay? Um, whether we like Glonacle as a neologism, it's an attempt at trying to recognise the, 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 the relational ways in which these concepts need to be linked together and are understood. So some anthropologists have focused very much on contradictions, blockages, hierarchies. Um, the global shadows, as James Ferguson puts it. The globalisation of the world, as Donna Harrow puts it, is the production of some forms of life rather than others. So Anna Singh is an interesting writer. She's, she's just pointed to the appeal of the G word. The charisma of the notion of an era of globalisation, she writes, is comparable in many ways to the modernisation discourse. And we heard a bit of that last week. Um, we don't want, she says, uncritical globalism, but we need to understand what projects of globalisation do in the world. Okay? And she argues for the notion of friction. The, the sticky engagements, the messy negotiations that scholarly knowledge go through in their aspirations to be global. Um, so we're not simply saying, and anthropologists shouldn't be positioned as thinking, let's just focus on the local, because locality is often produced through global, through global encounters. Um, she focuses on, on the frictions of those encounters. So she goes all the way from mushroom hunting in, in rainforests to, to African water weeds to, sort of, to follow through um, this notion of how these, these different worlds come together. Science depends, as she puts it, on global connections and universal aspirations. Universally can only be acted in practice. Abstract global claims have to be studied as they operate in the world. The knowledge that matters is changing the world, is, is the world not the knowledge that travels and mobilises. Bruno Latour, some of you have come across, he also wants to hang on to the word the globe, whilst also somehow reconciling the way in which many people have fought against globalisation. His most recent book on the climate crisis starts with the position, universality now consists in feeling the, the ground underneath us is giving way. In a, very, in a very real sense, he's engaging with the ground. He questions a single provincial vision of globalisation that leads to the imposition of a small number of interests, a few instruments, a few standards, a few protocols, what he calls globalisation minus. Instead, he calls for globalisation plus, multiplying viewpoints, 
a greater number of varieties, a, a larger account of beings, cultures, phenomenons, organisms, and people. Okay, so let me now turn to a couple of examples. What might this multiplication, this globalization plus, um, look like in practice in, in, in actual examples? Um, well, here's one example, which is very close to home, 100 years ago here in Oxford. Um, the first DFIL was awarded. Um, Oxford was, of course, an influential nexus in an imperial Victorian empire of scholars, as Tamsin Pitch puts it. Them, the Rhodes Scholars, the affiliated universities and the Dominions, the imperial apologists. Of course, we also were absolutely adamantly against research. <laughs> um, Oxford tutors were committed to undergraduate education, and they disparaged um, doctorates as futile enumeration and speculation, um, evil of research without judgment of vocation. So what was interesting about the creation of the doctoral degree here, and it was the first university in the UK to create it, was that it was the result of lobbying from universities across the, um, the, 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 the British Empire. Um, of course, it was also First World War real politic because we didn't want to lose all our students um, to, to Germany after the war, not that, and they were trying to attract Americans here. So very, very much, you know, right 100 years ago, Oxford was thinking in terms of its position within a, within a global world. Um, and, of course, who were the first scholars of students who came here? Well, in the first 10, 15, many of them were South Asian students because there was such a lot of demand from South Asian students to, to do research. And, and what well, that therefore did, when, the DPhil when it started here, was it opened up the university. It became suddenly a global research university. And if you look at the lists of the early dissertations awarded, there were quite a few Sanskrit scholars who were doing research here. Um, many of them were humanities. They weren't simply chemists. There were some chemists as well, mathematicians. What else did it do? Well, it also brought activists from all over um, um, British, British colonies, anti-colonial activists, you can think about Joma Kenyatta, Kwame Nkrumah, Ramrao Ambedkar. Many of them came to Britain, mostly to LSE, because it was a bit more politically active than Oxford. But, but you know, that many of them came, and what did they do here? They, they, they networked. They created anti-colonial um, politics. So in the move to create a global university, we also created the post-colonial critique of the empire, that then was so powerful in shaping the future of, of um, post-colonial movements. So Robert Young, who's a, a post-colonial theorist, talks about the global networking that these, um, what he calls, tricontinental gatherings created, because he documents this, um, creating subalternist epistemologies, changing the terms and values under which we all live. Um, he says, post-colonialism is a normative position. Those in the West, both within and outside the academy, should take other knowledges other perspectives as seriously as those of our own. So my argument is that these post-colonial critiques were also global visions. As Anna Singh puts it, universalism is implicated in both imperial schemes to control the world and liberatory movements for justice and empowerment. So somehow then we need to recognize that we, we need forms and models of globalization that understand the different speeds at which they work, the different levels of connection, the shadows that are get created within this globalization, but actually also the fact that there are shared spaces. I want to turn now to Ghana, I promised I would. Um, a second example of the post-colonial global comes from the troubled arrival of the modern university age, as Tim Livesey puts it, in Africa. Um, if we don't include Al-Azhar and um, um, pre-colonial university forms, then let's look to the pioneering act acts of three West African intellectuals in the late 19th century, James Horton, a Sierra Leonean doctor, Edward Blyden, Caribbean-born Liberian educator and writer, Ghanaian journalist, Pan-African intellectual, J. Casely Hayford. All of them were really active in mobilizing for a university for West Africa. 
And Hayford wrote a novel in 1911 called Ethiopia Unbound. And it's a brilliant because it's an account, a fictional account, of a national university in Africa with an, a, a, an academic graduate from it in dialogue with a, with a, with a white student. And it, it's espousing a theory of education based on African languages, based on national universities, um, based on, on, a, on a sense of, of you know, an African perspective on knowledge. This is 1911. This is a fictional novel. Okay? He went on to lobby Gold Coast chiefs, um, and that led to the creation of Achimoto College in the 1920s. I'm sure it was modelled on the British public school, but it went on to train a, a generation of independent leasers. It went on to train um, first heads of state. And then, um, if you look then to the 1930s, the British colonial office were really resistant to funding education in West Africa. Um, a series of hard-hitting reports pushed, um, pushed the, the colonial office into finally um, to, to creating universities. Um, there was vehement demand, as one report put it. There was an indefensible reliance on American university provision. So what you get then is the Asquith universities after the war in Uganda, Makara, Nigeria, um, uh, Ibadan, Ghana, um, University of Ghana, Lagon. So for many African commentators at that point, this was, this was the African modernity. Okay, this was the arrival of the university age. But these universities were designed by British architects, staffed by British academics, and um, awarding London degrees. Okay. The first vice-chancellors saw their role as championing academic excellence and political disengagement. Only the best was good enough, they said, which meant, of course, Oxbridge high table, gowns, um, formal dining, college quadrangles. You go to some of these universities, you can find these, find these things still there. There's no wonder that Kwame Nkrumah was so op vociferously opposed to this late imperial cultural project of transplanting a British academic ethos. And you know, at that point, it was very much an Oxbridge ethos as well. It was a very Edwardian blueprint. As um, the commentator Eric Ashby pithily notes, it perpetuates the assumption that a university system appropriate for Europeans brought up in London and Manchester and Hull was also appropriate for Africans brought up in Lagos, Kumasi and Kampala. So that set African higher education onto a troubled trajectory, promoting a geopolitical imaginary defined by what we call the global north. So Nkrumah and others, of course, we now know, had a very different vision for Ghana's universities. They, um, he'd gone to America because um, he, couldn't, he failed his University of London exams. He was inspired by anti-colonial activism in, in, in Pennsylvania. He became president of Ghana. He developed a very strong critique, a very powerful critique of these Western university models. He insisted that the university must relate its activity to the needs of the society in which it exists. It must take root amongst African traditions. Those of you who remember Tristan's talk last week about university development studies in Ghana... That was a direct consequence of that vision for a university linked and rooted in African traditions and cultures. He championed Africanization of the university. He um, in, ultimately imposed a new constitution and became vice-chancellor, which, of course, <laughs> was under, rather undermined the notion of academic freedom. But, but at that point, there was this vision, okay? And social scientists in, in Makara and Dar es Salaam also shared this vision. They began to develop an African-centered geopolitical imaginary. They wanted to provincialize Europe. They wanted to challenge European knowledge forms. They sought to reimagine Africa's place in the world. They were imagining a global higher education. And I think today's post-colonial critiques um, have, have sustained that, those debates. And if you look now then to contemporary Africa, we are seeing very many strong oppositional readings for the politics of capacity building, um, the politics of global higher education. Mamou Bamdani, political scientist in Makara, puts it bluntly, African universities are still a colonial project. He calls for African scholars to be trained at home. Um, um, Felix Maringay says, Africa shouldn't simply reproduce the knowledge required elsewhere, especially in the global north. 
in Shlivagatsheni, higher education does not need to alienate African people from their societies. So these are very strong decolonial critiques. They're happening today all over Africa, and they're driven often less by empirical cases than by normative visions, sure. Um, but, but, they, but they're also making the case that African universities are defined by these epistemological colonialities. And um, there's, there's, you know, obviously I'm just talking about African examples, but we could look at Rywin Connell's work, The Good University. Um, she too takes up a southern perspective, um, and she too is very critical of globalization as a sort of market ideology um, and neo-imperial economy of knowledge, an illusion, almost she puts it, a hangover from the old empires. We could look to Latin America, Dos Santos, the theorist of emancipation. I think we mentioned a little bit of this work last week with um, the seminars. Um, Toshantos argues for universities as pluriversities, making them accountable to society. We need non-academic contextual knowledge. Achille Mbembe also continues this imaginary. He wants to decolonize the university to open up a geographical imagination well beyond the, um, the, the, well beyond the nation states, an imagination open to different traditions. Echoing Latour, he calls for a less provincial, more open cosmopolitan pluralism. So I guess what I'm trying to do here then is I've tried to show that actually there are these in history and in, in contemporary moments very strong post-colonial critiques. And I guess I'm also trying to argue that these need to be seen as part of the conversation. Simon left us with this notion of the multiple globals. And I think rather than seeing these as somehow different, they are often emerging in response to, in reaction to, um, in relationship with the global visions. Okay, so the last part of my talk is called Mapping the Normative Terrain the future of global higher education studies. So Tristran's new, new work on higher education and the SDGs recognises that defining the university is inevitably a descriptive and a normative venture. And the challenge he sets us is, how do we separate out the risks of the descriptive and the in, in, um, normative getting colonised by each other? Can you disentangle the two? Can you shine light on both? He argues that his, his, his book is an attempt to map this terrain, this map of this, this normative terrain, and the contradictions of the different frames of the university in relationship to it. Now, I would suggest that the particular challenge we all face is that we're writing about, talking about global higher education um, from within one particular um, elite global higher education institution. Okay? So we have a double challenge here of our own normative investments, our own positionalities within it. Um, and here, um, uh, some of you may know the work of the sociologist Craig Calhoun, but he has a great, he poses a big challenge for us, which is um, theories of cosmopolitanism, he puts it, are the class consciousness of frequent flyers. Okay? Um, but if you, if, you, if you have a good passport, if you have a, a visa, an international credit card, membership in airline clubs, invitations from conference organizers, facilitators all over the world, that enables you to inhabit um, the world as an apparent whole. Okay, a cosmopolitan elite culture, he suggests, is a product of Western um, dominance. Now, it's not as simple as that, clearly, but it's an interesting challenge for us to think about how we write about the universities, given our own investments in it. And Bourdieu helps us a bit here, but also he got a bit stuck as well, I think. So, you know, I ultimately think Bourdieu's theory of knowledge is an intellectualist theory. He defends the importance of truth being produced in a disinterested way, in um, allegedly way in artistic fields. Um, I think almost he could be accused of, um, and he certainly defends the university as a sort of, um, as a needing a magical boundary. He almost calls for an international of intellectuals. Sure, he wants to fight against our scholasticism, as he puts it, and he urges us to be reflexive, but, but really does he solve that problem? And I'm not sure he does. Um, 
So what do we do then about um, the way in which Ellie Thilkelton puts it? Forms of academic knowledge used to advocate and evaluate university models are tactics. Okay? They're, they're once put, at once political, epistemological, and ideological. So this is, you know, we, we, we can't easily separate out the ways we think about university from our normative positions. Epistemic questions bleed into normal political discourse. That's why the future of global higher education is so contested. Okay, because we can stake so many different Im rival empirical, normative, political representations. And let's remember that empirical and normative are often conjoined, then, then, then that, that's why there are so many visions from the very post-colonial critique to, to a much more upbeat vision of a global civil society. Thorkelson says there's no standpoint from which we can rationally examine the system. Now, I don't know, I don't want to give up all, all, all scope of rational examination, but I do think he's asking a difficult question is, where do we stand? How can we stand? Is there one place to stand where we can be secure? If we can't disentangle the normative from the empirical, perhaps we have to think about how we deploy that couplet. Okay? How we, how we, if we're all committed to the university, and I think we all are, yeah, then how do we deploy these couplets? What does it mean for the field of global higher education? I think what it means is sustaining a dialogue between these different normative visions. And this is where Latour's version of Globalization Plus is helpful. Okay? We need both those stories of the accelerated university, the slow scholarship. We need the stories of critical university studies. We need critical um, audit culture studies, the critiques of academic error mobility, new rankings. We need all these different approaches to thinking about the university because they offer us these multiple visions of the global. And that's why we need to remember the past as well because if we're thinking about decolonizing the university, we need to remember how and where that's been done in the past and how that's been imagined. So what we're trying to imagine then is a more capacious field of post-colonial global higher education studies that embraces this complexity. Student calls to decolonize the university, academic radicalism, Utopian calls for reform are forms of prefiguration that are also forms of academic practice that shape our research. So, learning from Clark Kerr and his pluralism, learning from Simon's own work, we need genres of global higher education research that are at once empirical, reflexive and normative in their knowledge politics. If there are many competing and antagonistic visions of the future, we need them all. Policy maps of institutional capacity, journal citation data, doctoral completion metrics, international student numbers, Sure, that's one empirically driven account of this post-global landscape. We could have a different set of metrics. Um, differential mappings of access, student debt, academic air miles. Okay? We need to know more about the ecological and affective externalities of universities or their responsibilities. We need more critical and reflexive work attending to the margins and the shadows. This would allow us to see how they might transform the debates about the university and um, to shape global civil society. So... To finish, I've argued for the re rethinking of our field. I want to say and suggest we need to think about it as post-colonial global higher education studies. It is a call for globalization plus. It is an inclusive epistemology. It's a, it's a vision that combines policy pragmatism, prefiguration, and data-rich empiricism. It's a vision for global public goods and for calls to delink the universities from that world system. Perhaps the challenge then really is to create a, a post-global higher education studies that allows for that antagonistic interdependence of these different approaches to knowledge and that learns from its own history of resistance and critique from Nkrumah to Rhodes Must Fall. Okay, thank you.